guys, this is Ryan from the Moose Dead World. I'm uh, joined by Martin, who is our our, all, our consistent special guest. I was going to say co-host, but... Co- well, I don't know why. I'll call you a guest. We don't have any guests on here. We don't ever get any interviews or anything like that. Well, so. maybe soon. Maybe George Miller will be our next... Uh... George Miller? <laughs> I would hope you would want to be on our podcast, but... I don't know if that would ever happen. You just gotta shoot for the stars. All right. Well, if you can, um, you know, if you can tell by the subtle nod to George Miller that we just had right there, and also the uh, background music that's playing behind us, um, today we're talking about Mad Max Fury Road. You um, Ryan asked for a, good, a great film to review because he's been beaten down by the past few crappy movies we've watched and. This is a great film. That's right, and uh, both of us saw it in theaters when it came out. Um, we didn't catch it on any on like IMAX or 3D or anything like that. We just caught it in regular theaters. That's an hour drive for us. Yeah, which um, in retrospect would have been totally worth. We should have done it. Yeah. But um, we definitely we we caught it when it came out, and we loved it in theaters. Uh, and we we decided that we want we definitely wanted to revisit it once it came out on. You know, on uh, home video, on, um, on Blu-ray. So I've said it before on this podcast, because we've hinted at reviewing it before. Uh, it's easily the movie of the year for me last year. Like 2015 movie yeah, of the year for not, you? Yeah, not even... Nothing even came close. <laughs> even considering, like, movies that you watched that were not from 2015? Yeah, it's still... It's, still, it's one of my... It's, yeah, it's up there. Still like that yeah. as much... Um, I really liked it a lot too. Like I was saying to, uh, to Martin and, uh, my wife who watched it with us for the first time tonight. Um, it was one of those movies that when you're, when we saw it in theaters throughout the whole thing, I was kind of like, holy shit, you know, yeah. just, just kind of in awe of what was happening. Jaw down, mouth of game. Yeah. Like, holy shit. And I was saying, I don't remember like another movie that I was in the theater just Thinking and, like, wow, you know, wow, I'm blown away by this. We saw it actually pretty early in its release too, and there wasn't really anybody in the theater too. No, it was pretty surprising that there was very few people in the movies. I mean, we don't live in a very heavily populated area to begin with. Yeah. So even when you, like, it's only like when you go to see like big name films, like if you were to see, which is coming out this week, Batman versus Superman, within its first few days, the place is gonna be packed. Yeah. But like, even so, like, Mad Max Fury Road. Mad Max is a pretty well-known franchise. Yep. Um, but even still, not, not a lot of people were there when we went to see it, and which surprised me. Well, but, but 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 as I was telling you, this is like they should have used as a tagline, though they never would have. Was uh, the the sequel that you didn't know you wanted? Mm-hmm. Because as I've said before, now I'm not really a big fan on the idea of releasing sequels or. Like twenty plus years after the fact, and this film is a sequel twenty five plus years in the making. Yeah, and it's like when I first saw the trailer for it on TV, I kind of groaned a little bit. I was like, oh. "Yeah, like really? Why are they coming out with another Mad Max film?" Even though, even though George Miller was working on it, he was writing and directing it again. It, well, it, it's it's still it kind of, still confidence. It's still kind of like it's you know yeah. it's been twenty five years just yeah. Leave, you know, leave the franchise be. And I mean, I think you were the one that had influenced me to go see it. I don't think I was, I, I wasn't, 
you know, I what I didn't have my heart set on seeing it. I think you were like, do you you know, do you want to go see mm-hmm. Mad Max Fury Road? And I was like, sure, because normally if you invite me to go see a movie with yeah. you, I'd do it because you know it doesn't matter what it is really. I just will go see it. Like Terminator Genesis. Yeah. I mean, we just kind of <laughs> we just kind of go and see movies. It's been a thing that we've done for years, probably you know since high school and before that. But when I, mean, I invited you to my Fantastic Four birthday oh party. God. <laughs> <laughs> see Fantastic Four in theaters at my birthday party. But um, should have snuck out with. Oh, and here. Epic Movie. That was oh another one that. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, the entire the entire eighty minutes, which Epic Movie is only like eighty minutes. Yeah, and I was really bitching short. the entire time watching that. Say like. I could have bought Subway. You were you were constantly bri- saying like you owe me eight bucks <laughs> after that. You're just like the whole time you owe me eight I mean, bucks. Well, it is a terrible film. I could have had we a should, leg- We should rewatch that. Oh my god, no. we'd have so much fun with that. I would no. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think you were the one that had mentioned seeing it, and I was like, sure, you know, let's go see it. And then, well, after seeing the trailer, because they I actually I don't watch a lot of TV, but I saw like the trailers constantly on you know. The few times I was watching TV, yeah, seeing like the commercial for it over and over, and just kind of watching, it, I'm like, this does actually look pretty good. Like, this might actually not be a bad movie. Yeah, the movie that you think it might, it, you know, it could be. So going into it, my expectations weren't like they weren't like low, but they're like it could be an okay film. I don't expect it to be anything great, but leaving, it, I was like, holy shit, that you know. I think movies like RoboCop did that to us where they kind of mm-hmm. made us expect the worst and then get even worse <laughs> well yeah I mean, get, get worse than the worst that there's we thought very it could be. there's very few either remakes or like sequels after 20 years or reboot sequels that I've seen over the past couple of years that I've left kind of being like wow that was much better than I thought this is one of those and another one would be Godzilla I don't think Godzilla would be any good yeah yeah, but Godzilla was great. Well. I I did love Godzilla. Yeah, um, even though it, it definitely had its flaws, yeah. I I still had a lot of fun watching that. Yeah, in no, that was really yeah. good. And Evil the Evil Dead remake too. I expected going into that that was not going to be good at all. But yeah. I, but I actually left it pretty pretty uh pleased with it. Not I, not thinking it was yeah. a great not thinking it was a great film, but I thought like leaving the uh, theater with Dan, I was like, look, that was better a lot better than I thought it would be. I thought it would be really awful, but it. I had some gripes with it, but yeah, I'll agree that it definitely wasn't as, as terrible as... But those are probably the only thing I think off the top of my head that yeah. were kind of like reboot, remakes, sequels 20 years after the fact that, you know, was like... That were good. We wouldn't put Terminator Genesis oh, in that no, category. No. no. I, I, you know, to be honest with you, I'd love to have like a... And, we'll, and we will do a review of this down the line of the remake of RoboCop and just kind of compare like what was worse the remake of yeah. RoboCop or the the reboot sequel remake of Terminator Genesis yeah I mean, that's I mean, pretty tough both, both are bad and I know that with our RoboCop viewing we definitely both came out of it not really disliking it and our friend you know took a shit <laughs> <laughs> through about, about an hour of it and didn't really miss anything. So I think that tells you something about it. Um, you know, I don't know. I just, yeah, we'll have to do a review of that, revisit it, see how much we still really don't gonna, like it. And honestly, it would be really it would be really interesting to watch, you know, RoboCop, the original, 
and then watch RoboCop the remake and well, see. Why would you want to do that to yourself? I don't know. You well, would... I would. Wa- I would like to watch RoboCop the original again. Why it's not? Been so long since I've seen that movie. Well, if you want to treat yourself to crap, then treat yourself, <laughs> treat yourself to Paul Verhoeven's Showgirls. Showgirls, yeah, and then. RoboCop remake. Well, and even sh- but Showgirls like can be it has, hilarious. Yeah. And, like, and at least can... it has boobs in it. <laughs> I mean, uh, with RoboCop, you what are you getting? Metallic, a metallic dude, guy mm-hmm. who's very. I mean, not you're only getting, you're, you're getting Red Foreman as the villain. <laughs> yeah, not <laughs> only is is RoboCop metallic in in his suit, but he's played by a metallic actor. I mean, he's played by some robotic, <laughs> a robotic actor who's just going through the motions, and well, part of that is the direction. But that's what he's supposed to be. I know, I know, but still, I mean, there's just no, there's just nothing there to like about this RoboCop. Oh, so at, at least so in, so in the re, so in the remake RoboCop, you're supposed to connect him because like you get to see the close-ups of like his wife and his kid. Like, yeah, he's like, oh yeah, he's got a kid. It's like it's like in Godzilla with like the exactly yeah he's like oh the he, same way as Godzilla yeah, stupid they they both <laughs> they both have very similar dynamics with that where you have this guy who is our hero and not our hero yeah but then and then you know you've got his family that are really on the outskirts of the film in, in general they're just in their in, in the films trying to make you feel something well they're just well they're just there so you can be like, yeah. so you can be like, oh yeah he's oh, yeah, he does have a family oh, yeah. you know and, you know it's like you you kind of always assume that someone has a, a family they have a, at least parents or you know cousins or something that might care for them but no this this these movies have to shove it in your face that yeah they got a wife and kids at home they, if they don't come home, there's going to be some sad faces. Bills aren't getting paid. <laughs> All right, we got to take a we got to take a break to talk about um, the beer that we've. I'll say we've been drinking because we've already covered Jenny Bach on here before. Which well, is I don't know if we have. You know, we've t- we've talked about Maybe it a couple of times, but I don't think I brought it on the podcast. Yet. Uh, I don't know. But you still got to grab me the shitty magic hat. Oh yeah, you do have that still. So. What we're drinking right now is Jenny Genesee Bach, which is their uh, seasonal, right? I mean, it's it's pretty seasonal. Well, it comes out between January and April, and sometimes hard to find, depending. Yeah, it, they released it in January, but around here we couldn't get until like mid February. So we got it late, but it's uh, a good, cheap Bach beer. It's it's very good. It's very tasty. It's a very tasty beer. I love it. Much like whatever, whatever Jenny puts out. I mean, they really do have a, like a tasty cream ale, and they've got a tasty Bach. Uh, I love the can. It's I would say totally, I, totally fifties with the the bright green, the goat, and the little stars around it. Yeah, it definitely is. It's you know, I love, I love it. It's, and, and honestly, I really, I like their. What is it? Three horse sale? Is that what it is? Twelve horse. Twelve horse. Twelve horse. Uh, I do like that as well. I mean, they always put out kind of a tasty uh, take on their original blend. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, if you get a chance, if you see the Jenny Bach anywhere, you know, take a chance on it. You're going to see the low price and you're going to be like, oh, it's just another shitty beer. But it really is a, a good treat. Um, it's, I definitely want to say it tastes like a regular Bach no, beer. No, it doesn't taste like a 
regular Bach. To uh, compare anything, it kind of takes like a Yingling traditional, like their, a Yingling standard traditional, but I'd say it's much better. It, it, it's kinda, better than Yingling because Yingling always gives me this weird taste to it after a while. As I'm drinking it, you know, I always get this very weird taste that I, I just don't like. I dislike it. And Yeah, I, th I think the maltiness of this that they put into it, it's... Yeah. Uh, Gives it kind of a yingling type of amber lager characteristic, but it's it's much better. It's much crisper. It's yeah. very it's very easy to drink. It's you definitely can't go into it thinking like it's gonna be your traditional Bach. I mean it's it's definitely not. It's it's a variation on a Bach that they that Jenny has created. It's not gonna be the the quintessential Bach that you think of. So just the wording for that. But at like seven ninety nine, twelve pack, yeah, you can't you, can, you can't beat it's, that. It's great. I honestly wish they would have it kind of all year round. If not this, the twelve horse, because I do like having the, the twelve horse is good. Yeah, it's nice to have that little subtle difference with the it's supposed to be an English blonde ale, which it really kind of isn't. But yeah, it, you know, it's a it's a good mix. But they only kind of released it in the fall last year. They didn't release it at all, as far as I know, at least around here. Yeah, which sucked. But uh, yeah. If you if you're in the area where they sell Jenny Bot, give it a try because mm -hmm. it's going it's going away very soon. Yeah, and it'll be back just to the cream ale for me. The other thing that we tried, um, I bought a four pack of the new Sam Adams Nitro Coffee Stout, which was very it was difficult to find. Uh, we didn't have it around here for the longest time, even though it's been out for a, a little while now mm. with the, all the nitro uh, packs that they have. All I could really find was the IPA. The nitro IPA. Nitro yeah. IPA, and then they do have the Belgian White, too. I didn't see the Belgian White. I only yeah. saw the Belgian White in one place, but everywhere else I'd see like the nitro IPA. Yeah, which I also want to try that one because I haven't had that one yet. I've, I've had the Belgian White, and now I've got the Coffee Stout, but I haven't had the IPA yet, so I, I would like to see how that stacks up, even with like the Guinness one that we had. I imagine it's much better. I would say so, <laughs> but I just wanted to I just want to see what it's like. But the, um, the Nitro Coffee Stout is really good. It comes in a four-pack, um, and I think it goes for like $10.99, somewhere around there. Um, the first beer that I had was not chilled at all. So it, it was like basically at room temperature, which is kind of what you think of when you think of a stout. You don't think like it's going to be very cold. Um, especially a coffee stout. Right, so especially you, a coffee stout. So you can get more of that like, cold coffee and multi yeah. flavor from it. But. So I had it at room temperature and it really, I was very disappointed because it had very little head to it. I did pour it into a glass like the can says, you know, pour it into a glass and enjoy it from there. I did pour it into a glass, had very little head, very little lacing. Um, very flat to the taste when I, when I had it. Um, it wasn't super creamy. Um, so I was really disappointed in my first can. So I popped it in the fridge because I, I kind of was, when I got it, it, it wasn't refrigerated and I was kind of in a hurry to just try it. Did you grab it from the display that they had at TJ? I, uh, I didn't grab it. My, my, my mom did. She got, she was there and I asked uh, her to grab it for me. It's the same thing when I walked in there today, uh. Right in front, they had like a cardboard cutout. Like oh, they you, had it like 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 you would see slide. like the like for like for like David Sunflower yeah. seeds or like you know candy. Right in front, when you walk in, they have a cardboard cutout where they have like the coffee stout, then the Belgian white, then the IPA. Yeah, and it's like a Sam Adams cutout board, and it's like you know try our new nitro beers. Yeah, so I I don't know because I didn't pick it up, but I'm assuming it probably was out. Yeah, 
Um, yeah, so it wasn't refrigerated. So I popped it in the fridge after that, and then I tried one cold after it had been in for a day or so, and it, that was so much better. I mean, when you popped it open, you had that crisp little of the you know of the uh, carbonation within, and um, it, it definitely had had at that point, and it was very creamy. Um, the coffee really comes out in that. So that's one thing that I really look for within the coffee stout is because sometimes you get a stout and the stout nature of it overpowers the coffee. Like they which didn't put enough sh- coffee. Which in. is a shame because when you like try a coffee stout yeah. or any type of stout that's kind of got like a different type of flavor to it, you want you want that flavor to not necessarily, you know, not always have to be like full frontal, but like, you know, to be enough there to where it's like, oh yeah, that's that type of yeah. stout, you know. Yeah, and... and I tried it too, and I tried Mind Shield as well. And yeah, no, it has a nice coffee flavor to it. It's very nut. Uh, it is creamy. Mine didn't really have that much of a head to it, but that's not really that big of a deal. Yeah. Um, when I poured it in the glass, but it's really good. It's like what Guinness used to be years back, like a couple years back, before they kind of went around and changed everything and kind of screwed it all up. Yeah. Yeah. I liked it a lot. It was pretty good. I don't know if I'd buy it again. Yeah, I mean, for ten ninety nine, I mean, for it's a four kind pack. of a steep price for the four-pack. But, but it is, you know, it's an interesting experiment, and I don't really think they have a coffee stout. Uh, so, I mean... I think it seems like Sam Adams has kind of abandoned stout completely. Yeah. Like, five years ago, you used to see in their winter packs, like, you know, like, oh, we got this, like, stout and all this. Now it's like, instead of having a stout, we'll have a IPA! Yep. And and to kind of go off on a tangent, which I was kind of bitching to you earlier about, when I was looking for beer earlier today, I saw Sam's has their summer ale out already, which it's only been like three days in the spring, and they're fucking summer ales out already. And I honestly think that they've had it out longer than that. I think they had it out last week. It's the first I saw it today yeah. was, and it's just, I don't know, that's just, like I said before, pisses me off. It's not like even... Which I know they released Cold Snap pretty early, like, and it came out in January. Yeah. But still, it's, like, still 35 degrees out. Hell, on the first day of spring here in upstate New York, we had a snowfall, which we didn't get, like, any snow all winter, but we got we got snow the other day, and it's kind of like, you know what I don't want right now in this kind of gray, cloudy, 40-degree weather? A lemon zest-flavored beer. Mm-hmm. Um... Summer Ale is not my favorite anyway. It's my least favorite. Of the yeah, seasonals. I would say it's my least favorite of the seasonals. Uh, I don't really know what I turn to in the summer. I normally probably actually turn to more generic, like, domestic beers. Just to guzzle. Yeah. Uh, or, like, corrupt, like Bud Light Lime. Even though that, like, I was kind almost, of, I was that kinda, saying... like, makes me cringe to say, like, <laughs> I do like Bud Light Lime a lot. <laughs> I was thinking about getting a 12-pack of Dos Equis for us today, because they're retiring. Dos Equis is good, too. Because they're, they're retiring the Dos Equis, man. He's done. Yeah, I know he is. And that makes you very sad. And yeah. He's done. It's like, he's like, he's the Sega to Sanshiro of beers. <laughs> he, he's gone off into the Netherlands to... But you don't really like Dos Equis. I don't, no. But I, I mean, do. But I, I mean, I, I bought... See, what's funny is, because I bought the Dos Equis when I first turned 21. It was one of the first beers I bought. Because of the commercials, and I thought, like, you know, I love it. Dos Equis commercials are great. I love them. And the most interesting in the man in the world is fucking great. And I bought them, and I started drinking them, and I was like, that charlatan, charlatan, he <laughs> fucked me. <laughs> you know, like, he fucked me out of my money. Like, this is, 
I mean, they're not bad, but like yeah. for like eighteen dollars a twelve pack, it's yeah. kind of like Heineken. Like Heineken, I don't mind. Oh yeah, I, I do like Heineken. I like I mean, I like I don't mind Heineken. Like if, if you know, I'll buy like every now and then I'll buy like the it's four on sale or something. It's on sale or like the four packs that are five ninety nine. If I just want like a few beers like one night, I'm like yeah, I'll do that. But like go out and buy my way to buy like a twelve pack at like full price. No, because I don't want to pay like twenty dollars a twelve pack for Heineken. Yeah, so it's okay, but is it anything like? Great? No, because I'll drink them like I'll drink like a regular Jenny Cream Ale. It's yeah. like that's a waste of money. Yeah, I mean I agree. I I definitely look for like Dos Equis when it's on sale. Um, I mean it actually, same thing with Corona. Yeah, but but yeah, I mean I didn't. I like the the Jenny uh, Jenny Bach. I love. Yep. The coffee stout from Sam's is pretty good, and they need to stop coming out with the summer ale so soon. The other thing that I picked up was. Um, our local Hannaford had a sale on, it was 50% off for any beers that they had in their, these carts, and it, it was because they were half-priced, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, it was because they were out of code that they were half-priced, um, or at least very close, close to out of code. So one of them was the Magic Hat uh, Electric Peel, which is a grapefruit IPA, <laughs> and um, honestly, I stay away from Magic Hat as much as possible. I really dislike Magic Hat. We, we both It's like one of Magic the Hat. only brands that I can say that I really Go honestly dislike enough to where I'm, I just won't buy it. You know? Um, it, part of they're, it, number, they're, no, they're number nine, which is just their stable not quite, the not quite oil is fucking atrocious. I mean, I, I can't say that I dislike it as much as you do. I hate it. I can drink it. I but <laughs> but like the beer, I, I will just say like the beers that I've had for Magic Hat, they just do not impress me ever. And that doesn't, you know, Magic Hat for us normally is like seventeen ninety nine a twelve pack, and for me to even go and buy like a Magic Hat for that price, I, I definitely have to really like it to to pay for that. And uh, I just don't. I just can't. I don't see the appeal in Magic Hat. I just don't get it. I mean, I understand. Like they try, like they. They try experimental stuff. Yeah, sometimes. like like they had, like I remember like uh, one of the years when I went back up to college, like the year after graduated, uh, one of my friends had a twelve pack of their summer pack, and one of them was like a cucumber hibiscus ale. Yeah, and I tried them like, this tastes more like watermelon. This is you know yeah, and, like which kind of goes to the cucumber thing, but and it's like this. I don't know if I like it or dislike it. It's just weird, but like most of the beers I've had by them, I like flat out do not like, like especially the number nine. Yeah. I've tried the number nine a few times, and every time I have it, I'm like, oh, this is disgusting. Yeah, and, I mean, and the only Magic Hat beer that I've had was the one that we've had together when we were watching the Bills game was the when their Oktoberfest. Yeah, the Hex. The Hex, which I, I really like, actually. It was very good. That's that's like, if they had, when they have the 12-pack of Hex, I will contemplate buying that. But they haven't, though, for a couple, quite yeah. a few years. They so, haven't sometimes up. they do, but most of the time they put it in their Night of the Living Dead pack, which, I mean, I'm a horror fan. Geek. I love the Night of the Living Dead pack. Sometimes I buy it just because. Do you want that? <laughs> I was saying, do you want that green apple yeah. ale? No, no, they <laughs> always change those up. But yeah, uh, sometimes I buy that just because, just because it's Night of the Living Dead pack. And you know, one year I was in college and I bought the Night of the Living Dead pack, and it had a terrible apple beer. Yeah, terrible. The, yeah, the green apple. Yeah, it was, and it was just terrible. It tasted honestly, it tastes like vomit to me, and I really. I'm not one to like dump out beers or anything like that. I, I really did. I, 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 for 
any anytime I have a beer, like there's no way I'm leaving it like half full or not drinking the rest of it. But for those those apple beers that they had in there for that experimental pack, oh man, I just could not stomach those. Those are they tasted like vomit. And I really just I could I could barely get through those. Those are terrible. But I will commend them for you know trying at least trying new. something new. They 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 give it a shot, and you know that's nice. And and like I said, I do like their hex a lot. That's that's I think that's one of their best beers. They definitely uh, put a lot into that Oktoberfest. So and I'm I'm a huge fan of Oktoberfest as it is. So you know maybe I'm a little bit biased towards it, but I do like the hex. But so I picked up the electric peel. I wanted to try it. It was like on sale. It was 50% off. So it was like, it ended up being like eight bucks for a 12 pack. And that's really cheap, especially when it comes to like Magic Hat. And I hadn't had the electric peel. So I picked it up. It's a grapefruit IPA. Um, honestly, there's, it's nothing to write home about. Um, it, it has that signature Magic Hat, like malty taste to it. They had they, all their beers have a, a very signature taste to them. Um, I wouldn't say that it, it is, extremely IPA-ish um, and not very grapefruity either. Uh, I, I don't I don't get a strong taste of grapefruit and it is you know it's bitter like an IPA but it's not a very impressive IPA. Um, I, I I wouldn't recommend it. I, I mean it, it's it's fine and I wouldn't say that I hate it but um, I'm just not impressed with it, and I, you know, I wouldn't pick it up on its own. Um, with a grapefruit IPA, I'm expecting more grapefruit flavor from it, and it's just not what I got with this one. So, <clears throat> you have yet to try it, but uh, I'm, I, I'm sure I will. I'm like sure it. you probably will feel <laughs> the same way, especially if you don't like the, you know, their number nine or anything like that. It's, it's, it's very much in the same family, you know, <sighs> you know, so. So that, those are our beer excursions, I think. Uh, it's not, nothing really... I think that was it. Yeah. Uh, those were our beer excursions, so... So let's get into Mad Max Fury Road, because there's, there's there's a lot to talk about. We we definitely uh, have quite a bit to discuss about what we've seen, and, and, and seeing it for a second time is definitely different. I mean, it's definitely a different experience than when we saw it in the theater. I think uh, if you were to see this film in the theaters, we're going to see it. I think. Theaters where, yeah. Yeah. I, think I mean, I have a nice big screen TV, flat screen sound, TV, and sur I, surround sound. I'd still say, in the theaters where you need to see this film, which is going to be in theater probably for another 30 years, we'll probably do like a Mad Max, like, uh, rerun. Rerun it, like, somewhere in New York City, but, uh, if you experienced this, this film in the theater like me did, you got the true experience. Now, I think it's interesting to point out that when we were in the theater, we had a difficult time hearing in that beginning sequence. You know, like mm -hmm. the first probably half hour or so of the film, the dialogue mm -hmm. is very muted. It's very difficult to hear over the music. And, and yeah. that, yeah, that's... That might, which might have been like part of our or the cinema that we went to but i noticed it again in this blu-ray as well that some of the dialogue if had we not had the subtitles would have been lost to the music and just the sound effects that were mm. kind of overwhelming the the other parts of the audio and there were some dropouts with the sound that i think are uh within the film itself so it's just worth mentioning that 
I think that happens not just in the, you know, in the. In the I think right, almost but, you. I mean, not saying I prefer the film this way, but I, I think almost you could run this film as a silent film. And everything you really gets, don't need the di- yeah because there's very little there is for the most part very little dialogue in this film yeah so you don't like you don't really need the dialogue to kind of show you and tell you what's going on it's the actors emotions and what they're portraying very well I might say that gets everything across and I think even if this film was run silently it still would work fantastically yeah I mean. The couple of, like, vignettes where it cuts away from the action, you might need the sound. But within the action itself, you know, there's very little of that dialogue that actually makes any difference to what you're seeing. The opening is still very much clouded in mystery. We don't know much about Immortan Joe. Um, you know, we the, the movie doesn't give us very much at all to go off of for, like, the war dogs or the... Um, any anybody that's actually living in his community, there's you really get it from just what you see. I think almost too this film is because this is the fourth Mad Max film. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of done in the way where if you know the Mad Max lore, it's not very important. You don't really need you don't really need to know any backstory. No, and even if you know about what Mad Max, you know, encompasses, that it's post-apocalyptic, that there are people with, like, rigged-up cars. That's really all you need to know going into this new film, which I think was really good because now there's some callbacks to the other films, but at the same time, anybody can pick this up within the... You know, and anything that you might like be like kind of enhancing to the story, kind of about like Max's character, like if you've watched the original Mad Max films and you know, like, oh, he used to be a a police officer known as a road warrior, and his family's been killed, and this is why he's on the journey in this post-apocalypse wasted. That's like kind of nice to know, but at the same time, it's like that doesn't matter. Right? You don't need to know that. As we were watching with Sarah. You know, she'd be, like, asking, like, well, why Why is this person in this situation? Like, that doesn't matter. It has no bearing on the plot. Mm-hmm. This is why this is all happening. And I think that's a great kind of way this way the film's done is you don't need to know the backstory, really, to any of the characters. You don't really need to know anything about the, the lore. No. It's nice if you do. It's, like, an added bonus. But at the same time, it's like, if you're going into this, like, this is the first time you've ever seen a Mad Max film, don't worry, you don't need to know anything. It throws you in the situation, and then you can kind of pick up on everything else yourself. And not only that, this film, as we've talked about before, about reboot sequels, reseek, you know, all that, it's kind of, it's not exactly, it's not a reboot, it is a sequel, it's not... but it's kind of a remake of the Road Warrior, but it's not because it's it has a lot of things that the Road Warrior had, which is like the whole film basically being a car chase through the desert. But it's not really a remake of the Road Warrior, which you know it's 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 kind of like it's you know he does a great job. George Miller does a great job of making this film be its own film, mm-hmm. its own entity, and fitting into the Mad Max universe. Yeah, and. Like you said, you you really don't... I mean, you can know the universe. You don't have to. And 
I think that the flashbacks, you know, from Mad Max's life prior to this film, which none of those things that get flashback to either are shown in any of the films. So right, it's, it's, right. It's not. It's just more to use as character development to show that you know he's having regrets about lives that he hasn't saved before. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of refreshing to see a film that doesn't rely on its its dialogue to get the exposition across. It really doesn't need that at all. Um, it's relying all almost entirely on what you see. So when we see Immortan Joe releasing the water on these people that are filthy and dirty... We know that he's been hoarding this to himself, mm. even though that's unspoken. I mean, we, we don't... There's no dialogue that yeah. you, specifically you says... Don't, you don't see anything that shows how Immortan Joe came to power. No. Or how he acquired the water. Because, I mean, it's later said in the film that, he, you know, he pumps the water out of the earth. But you don't know how he does it or anything like that. It's just assumed, like, he's the leader of this certain village because he has water. And he can control people because of that. And yeah. then you're led led to pick up on like everything else from that, right? And even with like the mother's milk, we get a quick scene of them pumping breast milk from these women, and and Martin Joe and his sons drinking it. There's nothing else really besides that, and you know that just leads the audience to assume that what's been happening is that they've been hoarding this, they've been creating this kind of mother's milk empire that they have only and only them that keeps them in power and everybody else is kind of relegated to fend for themselves in this community and i think that it's really you know it's refreshing that the film can spend so much time on its action set pieces which are beautiful this and film now, does such a great job of blending real effects which this film does do a lot of actual practical effects and CGI too. It does it which I'm not a big fan of CGI at all. In fact, if you can do anything practical, do it that way, but this film blends it so well, both practical and CGI effects. It's fantastic and it's one of the reasons why did it win uh, best effects at the you know, I don't know. Cuz I know it won 6 uh I can't remember cuz I don't ever want to pay attention to like the Golden Globes or anything like that anymore. But I know it won six awards. I think one of them was for effects, and it's mm-hmm. well-deserved if it did, because it blends practical effects and CGI so well that it, it's not like you can sit there with your eye and be like, oh, that's totally fake. That's bullshit. Mm-hmm. It, everything looks organic, and that's one of the great things about this film is just how, overall, how it looks. Oh, definitely. I mean, I think that George Miller hasn't... You, you think about how many films have come out now since, you know, 25 years ago that have done post-apocalyptic themes. And you think about, you know, what have they done in terms of imagery and the character designs. And I'm still intrigued by what Mad Max offers to that um, within Fury Road. I mean, the designs in here... Are, I think, you know, they're not only are they creative, but to me they really stand out as part as, you know, they are Mad Max 
This is what Mad Max it's, it's, is about. It's like if you took the Road Warrior Beyond Thunderdome and put it 30 years. It looks, you know. And that's why in the opening we had, as Ryan didn't know, but um, I had him play the Legion of the Doom or the Road Warriors intro from the WWF, uh, What a Rush. Because their whole gimmick is kind of based on the road, like, you know, road warriors. Um, but, like, this film, like, when you look at it, it kind of, like I said, that's why it kind of feels like it could be a remake of the Road Warriors, but it's, but it's not. Because it has, it totally has the feel and kind of look and style of the Road Warrior and Beyond Thunderdome. But it's not a remake, it's tough. It's in a whole new story, a whole new set of circumstances that Max has found himself into. Right. And we talked about that a little bit uh, when we were watching the film, but Fury Road is only about Mad Max in the encompassing story that it's telling. You know, when we see that Mad Max colon, it seems like he is the main focus of this film, but when we really get into it, which is a very small part which, of what we see. Which, if you're, you know, if this is where, if you know anything about the Mad Max films, besides like the first Mad Max film, it's not when he's in the Road Warrior and when he's in Beyond Thunderdome. It's not really about Mad Max. It's him in these situations and kind of observing everything that's happening around him mm -hmm. and acting accordingly. It's not really these like focused on Max himself as the character. It's more. The best way I can kind of relate it to is, and not many people might know this, but it's like the anime Kino's Journey. It's about, you know, Kino's Journey, the main character's Kino, but it's not really about, like, her. It's about, she's kind of placed in these fish-out-of-water stories where she's, like, she arrives in this country that has a certain set of rules and just everything that goes around on around her. It's not really about her. It's about everything else around her. Right. And it's the same thing with Mad Max. It's not really about Max and his character growth and what you get to know from him in this film or any other Mad Max films, it's more what's going on around him. And I think, like, and how that's, a, that's a smart choice because how much stuff can you really do with Mad Max as a character? I mean, the film does focus on some of his, you know, his flaws, his, his uh, hang-ups, like the death of his child and uh, those flashbacks that we have. But how much can you really do with him as a person in a, a, a wasteland setting? Like they say in the film, there's a lack of hope within here. And with without hope, there's no chance for him to change. What, well, I mean, at the same time, I think that's like a, that's a very smart thing. Because if, right. if you think about it, and placed in a post-apocalypse situation, what kind of hope are you going to have? Right. Very little reason to... You know, as I said when we were watching the film, the people who survive throughout this kind of situation are those who really want to fucking survive. Yeah. And who are willing to do whatever means necessary uh, to survive. There's some people who probably placed in, like, if there were a, a nuclear bomb to go off today and start World War Three, and we were throwing yeah. a nuclear apocalypse... There would be people who would say, no, I can't kill this person or do that because it gets more You're probably going to die. Yeah. And, I mean, it's just like, the, you know, because, like, when it yeah. comes down to, like, when everything breaks down around you, it's like, you're going to have to do things that you probably never thought you'd want to do. And if yeah. you really want to live, 
you have to do those things. And Max is that character. He's already seen the worst of the world. He's already know he already knows everything that kind of goes on in the wasteland. Yeah. As when he's talking to Furiosa, when she's like, "Oh, we could ride 160 days out there." He's like, "Yeah, there's nothing out there. We could do that. There's nothing out there, though." Yeah. You know, you're wasting your time. Yeah. Or we could go back and try to take you know. Yeah. Take the place. He knows. He's wise. He does everything pragmatically for the most part. He's when he's threatening Furiosa with the gun. He's not you know with the shotgun. It's not because he's you know, trying to kill her, he's because he's trying to survive. It's all about survival and doing what you need to do to survive. Yeah, and I mean, I think that we, the film gets a lot of mileage out of, for one thing, Tom Hardy, who does, he, you know, you wouldn't think, at first, like, when you think about Mad Max, you're like, oh, Tom Hardy is going to be Mad Max, you know, what's he really going to do? But the film gets a lot of mileage up out of him not even having to say anything, but just being there in the situation with his expressions and his reactions. And he does a great job. Yeah, he's, he's doing a great job with it. Um, and, and to be honest with you, it's really fascinating to just kind of watch his reactions throughout the entire thing because they kind of, they, they sell the story, really. I mean, they sell what Fury Road is telling us, that, you know, he the limited character interaction that we get with Max is actually more of a blessing than, than, you know, limiting to the plot because the times when he does come through with whatever dialogue he has to say or whatever he's got to do, you know, that's more uplifting and impactful. because of it. Yeah. yeah. And he doesn't say much. Like, he won't even tell Furiosa his name until the very end of the film. Yeah. So, he's, you know, it's not that he's like, soft-spoken, but he, he doesn't really, you know... I, you know he, doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't speak unless he, like, really needs something to say something. And it's not like that... It's not like him. It's the entire cast. Everyone really limits their dialogue to being said when necessary to explain certain things. I mean, that brings up an interesting point. I mean, do you think that that part of Mad Max as a character is encompassing of the other films. Yeah, because, like, in, I think, The Road War, he only has, I think, like, eight lines or something like that. Yeah. He doesn't say... It's mainly the first film... Where he's actually... Because where, you that's get to, part, where, where you get to know Max himself as he's, you know, he's a road warrior, he's a cop, and is starting to be a post-apocalyptic world, and he, but he has a family that he's trying to protect. That's more of a character study, but with the Road Warrior and Beyond Thunderdome, it's not really you're not really getting a character study out of Max. It's more Max is in this post-apocalyptic setting and he's dealing. He's thrown into the situation. How does he deal with that? Mm. And how you know? And what is the importance of, of everything going on around him? So, like in this film, it you know fits perfectly as a sequel. You don't really like again. You don't need to know Max's backstory. It's yep. not important. It's, I mean, it, would it be, if you did, hadn't watched the film, would it be like, oh, would you be sitting there going like, I'd like to know like what happened to Max, like to watch like the first film, right. then you'll know, but other than that, is it like important? No, it's not. And the same is true with like Furiosa. You really don't need to know anything about Furiosa, yeah. which is very nice because, well, um, it'd be like, it'd, <laughs> it'd, it'd almost be like the fat of a bacon, fat of the bacon, like. Everything that Furiosa does and whatnot, like yeah, you get like to know a little bit about it, but do you really need to know? No, it's kind, of, it's kind of right. best left up to the imagination. The like most if, if you go went any further into it, be kind of just be indulgent. It's be yeah, 
not necessary. Where where most films feel the need to question their characters and to to specifically tell us how they've gotten to that point, Fury Road really refrains from doing that. And I think at first you'll have viewers who are kind of like at odds with that, that they're thinking like, I wish they would just tell me what's going on. You know, for the first half hour of the film, you, you really have like no idea what's, no idea what's going on. You know, you're, you're kind of following on a whim as George Miller takes you through these set pieces. Like there's nothing there. Yeah. Max gets, yeah. Max gets captured. He's in this place. You don't know exactly what the place is. There's a bunch of pale looking skinheads there. Yeah. You don't know what's really going on. And then you have Furiosa, Charlie's Theron's character. She's leading this convoy and she breaks away from it. And at the same so you're kinda of left if going like, What the hell right. is going on? But at the same time it's you don't really want to know that. And I think that's a great thing because as you said, um, I think a lot of films these days don't leave enough up to the viewer to try to figure out or solve or up to their imaginations. You know, they try to hold your hand throughout the time. I'm like, this is what we're trying to do, and this is what you should see. I think if you're not new to Mad Max or this kind of storytelling, it's kind of, it, it's kind of, it would be kind of a nice eye-opener. Like, like, your film doesn't have to spell everything out for you. You can not understand it, and that's fine. Watch it again. And yeah. see, you know, and learn more from it at each time you watch it. I mean, even when we get into the the specifics of this quest that we, that Mad Max is on, that he's helping Furiosa um, against his, basically not well, kind yeah. of against his will. I, I mean, mean, he's stuck on this road trip. Basically, yeah. there's not really much that he can do. Um, they've already angered Immortan Joe's guys, so they're following them at every turn. Um, yeah, I mean, there's no even then. You know, when we when we meet the women that Furiosa is transporting, there's no. I mean, there are images, and there are a couple kind of explicit references to what Immortan Joe was doing, but there's no real, you know, explanation that's like, we're running away from mm-hmm. Immortan Joe because he's enslaved us, and uh, we, we don't want to be part of that anymore. We're mm-hmm. running to this other place where there's women who have escaped enslavement and have started their own commune, mm-hmm. and they have... Green places to you know to grow things. Yeah, no, all all it says. All that, all that is all all that is said is they're breeders. Yeah, he's they're chosen women for him. All all of that is is subtext, and that's and that's all you need to know. And everything else you can you know from paying close attention, you can gather like oh he's you know your stereotypical alpha male. He's you know, leads these group of people. He's the only one allowed to breed. He slicks the people that he can breed with. And so, when I was when rewatching this, though, I did notice that um, in hindsight, some of the lines that are said are kind of they are kind of explicit. They kind of do hint at what is happening. They they're not. You know, they they're. In context, when you actually know the the end result and and the whole uh, entirety of the story that is Fury Road, some of the lines and dialogue that is uttered by mostly the women that are running away from uh, Martin Joe is kind of on the nose. Did you feel like that when you were 
I mean, yeah. I mean, it's not... As, I, as, as we joked before about seeing, like, George Romero, it's like when he made Dawn of the Dead, oh, he's, you know, he's making a commentary on, like, uh, he's making a commentary on, like, capitalism and consumerism, and it's kind of like, yeah, it probably wasn't, it just, you know, kind of happened to look like that. This film definitely does have kind of a political stance to it. Yeah, definitely. Whether it be humanist or feminist on how you view it, it definitely does, and it definitely resonates. Some of the yeah. very, you know, certain, there are very certain lines in this film that are very on the nose, such as when he's looking at one of his wives and she's threatening to throw herself from the war rig, and she's pregnant, and Joe says, don't do that, that's my, that's my son, that's, yeah, that's my, my pro property, that's my yeah. property, yeah. that's, you know, totally, yeah, that, that, on the nose, yeah, that's on and the nose, it's, it's like, there's, you know, there's a couple of lines that are like that, which but I it, felt, but at the same time, I think, it's not, yes, is that on the nose, but that's something he would say, that's, yeah, that's true, and that's, and that's setting, and what the social structure is, and, as him being an overlord of a society and the like, alpha male, he would say that he would say, you know, he wouldn't be concerned with her rights and well-being because, as far as he he's concerned, he just wants the son. He wants a son. He wants because he's because if you notice the whole the war boys and the war pups, which are the younger war boys, they're children that he's fathered, but they're disfigured and pale. They're not natural like normal, natural humans. They've got some kind of genetic, genetic flaws to them. So, to him, he's the one that is the only one allowed to breed. So he's basically picking certain women who have certain qualities for that he would see as perfect breeding. And so he could try to, you know, because he owns ownership of breeding himself, he's looking out for, you know, trying to create the vet, you know, a normal human to continue on, not just his legacy, but humanity's legacy. Yeah. So, and this, that's, you know, where you get the whole idea of, like, yeah, that's his property because he's the one that's fathering them. Yeah. I mean, and that's where you get into the whole debate of who has control, you know, the, fem the feminist perspective that this film kind of has with the women... Which, I mean, and, and, and it's a great, you know, debate between, you know, whose rights, yeah, for, like, creating children. Like, who has the right to say, is it the woman's right, is it the man's right? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I gotta play devil's advocate here and just uh, mention that. I did feel that some of the, you know, the, the wives were poorly written. Uh, their, you know, their dialogue is. Well, I think only I think only one of them is supposed to be kind of giving a given a character. Yeah. I think the rest of them are just kind of. Yeah. They're there, and and I agree with that. Yeah, they're like. Most of them don't really have anything to yeah. do. Yeah. They're not really given anything to do, but I think. You're only supposed to have that one specific wife that's kind of given a larger role. I think if yeah. they if they tried to give everyone certain greater role in the film, it would kind of hamper things down. 
Yeah. Especially from because of the pace of the film, because it's so, you know, neck break. Right, yeah, it's, it's very, very quick. And I think that was one of the things that we noticed about the film, like, when we were watching it in theaters, and even again when I was re-watching it tonight, was that, you know, you've got that first act, I guess, which is probably, like, a half an hour to 45 minutes of, you know, non-stop here's, here's what's happening, and then you get, like, a road chase that just keeps happening. Uh, when I was in theaters, I was kind of just, like, thinking, like, wow, this just keeps going, you know? And it's awesome. It's it's great. I mean, you, you get pretty much everything that you need to hook you into this film right from the start. And, you know, and it's just a, a, a pacing that I don't really think that many films have. Um, Not at all. No. I, I would say, like, going back, and I know it's an unfair comparison, like RoboCop. RoboCop's about the same length. The remake of RoboCop is about the same length as this film. Nothing really happens in that movie. It's very slow. It's very, you know, very trying to be poignant with everything it builds up, but it doesn't succeed. Yeah. Whereas Fury Road, it's just bam, 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 bam. You know, things are just constantly happening, and you got to keep up with what's going on. I think it's a testament to like the special effects team, the uh, all the set pieces that are created with this. Uh, the road that they're on. It's, it's, I, I think thinking about it, it's kind of immense how much actually happens and what went into creating that as special effects. Because if you think about just even that first, that first act when Furiosa is kind of taking a detour and Tom Hardy is, as Mad Max is strapped just, to, just, just strapped to a car, strapped as to a, a car. Bag. You you have so many things happening at that time, so many explosions, so many you know crazy events that it, it's kind of hard to imagine watching a film that is two hours long that has all of that stuff in it. There's just so many effects that it's it's mind blowing how they accomplish some of it. Uh, the people on stilts, for one thing, is just kind of like a very abstract idea and it really works out well in this film um some of those things are just very impressive uh, as to how they were pulled off um another thing is like Charlize Theron's uh bionic arm that she has looks really real Mm -hmm. and Charlize Theron has a another arm she has two arms (laughs) so she's she's not armless and so I would say that that looks very real throughout you know, most, you know, all of the film mm-hmm. is, is that they've, they pulled that off. Um, just kind of astonishing how, how good everything looks. And with the action sequences, you know, if you're a fan of action, I, I don't understand how you can just not like Fury Road. There's just no way that you can watch it after two hours and be like, yeah, that was okay. You know, I, I love action movies. I love Die Hard. I, you know, I, I, I love Lethal Weapon. Uh, you know, but the Fury Road is not that good. You know, I don't understand how you would be I able think, to say I, that. I think the box says, because the back of the box it says, uh, best action film ever made from some newspaper. I can't remember which one. I, I think I agree. I think it is like the best action film ever made. It's so impressive. Yeah. With its stunts, with its effects, with 
again, it's two plus hours of just, for the most part, nonstop action. Yeah, it just doesn't let up. Out of the two hours of this film, only maybe 15 minutes are very slow and kind of calm and maybe it's setting up setting some, setting up something but for the most part it's just non-stop yeah. pedal pedals in the metal but and even then i think george miller paced it very well because he understood that you know you can't have a movie that's 2 hours of action because that's kind of ridiculous you can't have you can't have these you know these scenes that just are never ending road chases yeah. because that just then you're eliminating plot entirely, and then you're and you're gonna numb the audience to it. It's like, exactly, oh, it's just, just, uh, it just keeps happening. Yeah. Like there's just action nonstop. So there are these. I mean, what effectively results in vignettes, which you you've seen, you know, Hitchcock use when he he did his long shots that really you know in some of his his films where you know a long shot transferred into we're changing out the the tape in this camera you know we're changing out the film in this camera to do another long shot another long take it's the same sort of thing within fury road yes it's not a, it's not the same take obviously yeah. but at the same time it is uh effectively a elongated scene that just keeps occurring and then kind of blacks out into a slower scene uh, that kind of sets up characterization, sets up plot, and then transitions again into another fast-paced action scene for a longer period of time. And, and then it, it, that that kind of pacing, that kind of rhythmic, rhythmics within the film is, I would say, kind of comforting. Uh, it, you know what you're, you know what to expect, and um, it just has a good sense of rhythm throughout. I would say. Um, that you you just I don't know I I I haven't really seen an action movie that has been able to capture that sort of element that mm-hmm. you know a good um there an equal portion of you know there's tons of action that you love to watch but then there's also that very small setup that you need throughout the film so you know most most action films uh, have a lot of setup. And mm-hmm. that's yeah, it makes sense. You you need to set it up to, to smaller action pieces, and then when it sets up to the big action final right. piece. That and and I would say that Fury Road is kind of the opposite. It has bigger action set pieces with smaller setups, mm-hmm. um, but the setups they really go a long way mm-hmm. into creating a world. Into and I I would say, do you think that? Had there not been three previous Mad Max films, uh, would it have been effective if this was just a standalone piece that was not a Mad Max film, but just Fury Road? I think uh, what would have hampered it in that sense would have been more not enough backstory, which is kind of hypocritical of me to say, but I think if it was just... I think if there was no lore to go on, You'd kind of want a little bit more background, but I think because there is a lore, you can go into this film without knowing that lore and enjoy it and understand what's going on. But it would lead you to go back into that lore and understand right, to figure out the rest of it. Yeah, to, un- to understand more. And again, I understand that's kind of hypocritical of me because I'm praising this film for not being so 
in-depth with its lore, but at the same time, I think if it was just a standalone film, it made me want to add a little bit more to kind of yeah. get you integrated into what's I, going on. I but, get that, yeah. But because it's not, but because it is already has a lore back to so you don't really need to know that, even if you haven't seen those films, because then you can just always go back to those films and kind of get adjusted to what's going on. I get that. Yeah, I definitely agree that, you know, had there not been a character that was Max that you didn't know about, you probably would just be wondering why you're following this person. Uh, you know, you would, you would, and it wouldn't make sense why he was so well-versed in the apocalyptic mm -hmm. landscape. And you would be wondering what, what the hell's going on at the beginning, because you wouldn't know, like, is this supposed to be post-apocalyptic? And again, I, you know, because that's not stated in this film at all. But, and you don't really need to know that. You can assume that. But yeah. if there's no lore to later go on back to, like, oh, this is how this all, you know, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. At the same time, I did find that um, the flashback sequences, or the, the illusions that Max sees, are probably the weakest parts of the film. Do you think that it's necessary for that to to be there? No, I don't really think you need to. Yeah. Um, I think that's more kind of if you haven't seen the films. Yeah, exactly. You can kind of be like, oh, he's a character that's kind of regretting past mistakes and not being able to save certain people. That's why he's kind of very just kind of cutthroat in for his own because he's just trying to survive on his own. Mm -hmm. If you, you know, I think... If this was a standalone film, then those flashbacks might serve as like, oh, he's, you know, somebody's regretting past mistakes. But if you already, you know, if you already have the established lore, then you didn't, you didn't really yeah, need those. You didn't really think, need those, yeah. And that and the uh, opening narrative were the, the biggest qualms that I had. Because the opening narrative is really the most that we ever hear Max, Max talk yeah. at all. And I think that's unnecessary. We don't need that sort of opening narrative. I think we could have started without that narrative and still gotten to the same place we had. It seems a little bit cheesy after, you know, watching it to see that it had, you know, and that doesn't even return. There's no narrative after the fact. It doesn't, uh, it, yeah, the, his narrative doesn't really explain anything. No, it doesn't really tell you anything about Max. It doesn't really explain anything about the universe. I think it's more kind of just like a noir element, which kind I, of... Yeah kind of the previous films had a little bit of, but I think it's just... You're, you're right. It's not necessary. You could have had him just uh, yeah. opening up, uh, show the apocalyptic uh, Australian outback, and him just driving around in his interceptor and running into bandits that attack him and take him out. Yeah, I would have preferred that it didn't open with that introduction to it. I, I don't think it needs it. I think it's a little over the top. Um, and it doesn't recur. It's not like that's a... You don't um, have constant... Yeah, you don't have a constant narration yeah. from him. Um, it seems like that's there uh, to situate the viewer, but then it drops out where, it, you know, as a viewer, you would think that the narration would be helpful after that point because you're not really getting much of a story until it builds up. Um, so, you know, I thought... I, that narration in the beginning, I thought, was a little problematic, but... Other than that, you know, I really love the film. There's two other things that I wanted to get to before we end this podcast. And uh, the first one is um, the use of lighting throughout the film. Because 
it has some really great color schemes to it that change throughout the arcs that we get in mm -hmm. the film. So in the opening, when they're in the desert, there's a, a an orange theme, basically. You know, you've got the orange of the desert that is, and the lighting is mostly orange on the on the characters. And uh, it's bright. It's and it's, yeah, yeah, it's very bright. And as we move throughout the film in the middle portion, it takes on more of a bluer tinge to it, uh, which is meant to signify... But now, as you're entering, like, the third act, it's supposed to be, like, the our heroes are down, lost, you know. Yeah, the bluer tinge of... And, and not only that they're down, but that there's... Literally, the area is, like, poisonous. Mm -hmm. That what was once green has now become a sort of wasteland in itself of uh, a blue, poisonous lighting, um, which I really love. I mean, I love the use of lighting... It's always kind of, uh, to me, what the kind of style and effects kind of remind me of. It's like Sin City, yeah, but done right and right. well. It's, I mean, I know Sin City is totally black and white, but like the way this film kind of takes its color and its usage of camera and the cinematography, it's remind it does remind me of Sin City, but it's like if Sin City were done very well. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate that they at least attempted to vary the color scheme mm -hmm. in general because um, what you could have gotten was a lot of drab sequences of being set in the desert. Mm -hmm. um, but now you've got, like, this whole world that's been built. You're going from a desert to a big, huge dust storm that has, you know, thunder and lightning. Dark red cloud, you know. Yeah, to, to an area that has was once a, a source of vegetation, but is now just a poisonous wasteland that has been, again, corrupted by humanity. Um, uh, so, you know, you've got these different settings, and it really helps to create this world that you're actually moving from one area to another instead of just one wasteland in the desert to another wasteland in the desert. So I really appreciated that, and I think that's uh, another part of what makes... Fury Road such an interesting watch is that you've, you've got this different lighting you've got the color schemes um, and I really like that and I really like to see that in the films so. um, the other thing that I want to talk about is the soundtrack which we've got playing which I uh, honestly I really love the soundtrack um, how do you feel? I know you were sitting behind the bass with the subwoofer, so you were getting most of the blast. But I, I like it a lot. I thought it was very soothing. Um, I, I think that um, what really gets me is that, you know, there's a lot of, like, metal in this film, which is almost used as a, um, a mockery of what Immortan Joe stands for. I mean, he's using cheesy metal riffs well, as, a, as part I, of I, his was work. Say, as, uh, as we watched in the film, you actually see with his war party as they're charging out he's got hundreds of these war rigs driving out but one of them's just dedicated to having drum big ass drums and a huge you know a mountain of stacks of amps and a guy who's just sitting there playing a fucking you know guitar ripping off you know metal riffs and it's just just you know it's 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 cheesy but it's like amazing at the same time just seeing this guy just you yeah. know as they're charging into battle after Furiosa and the war rig, just, you know, standing there just like... Bah, bah. This is his main job. You know, just 
And it's awesome. As, as I said, like, this is probably the most metal film ever made. It's in that sense. It's, I mean, yeah. it's kind of, it is tongue in cheek and like over the top. Yeah. And kind of like the Road Warrior was with its over the top, you know, people being like assless chaps and spikes and shit, but. It's awesome at the same time. It's really great. It adds a lot of character to the film. It's... Yeah. And it sets apart that faction that mm-hmm. Horton Joe has. But at the same time, it doesn't overuse those metal riffs like within its soundtrack itself. It uses the pounding of the drums um, to create, you know, it's, it's music. Um, but it doesn't overuse the metal riffs because sometimes, like, if you're thinking of, you know, like, films that overuse metal like ghost ship mm-hmm. with its ridiculous mud, you know, vein. mud vein uh soundtrack um this film is actually using an orchestral score besides you know what we hear when you get the the ch- and, like those short chases where they show you like you know yeah. they're chasing after furiosa and max and you hear you know the guy playing the guitar and the drums going off but other than that no it is orchestral it's orchestral and very intense i mean yeah. honestly the the bass uh swells and the the pounding of the drums they're they're very intense and they really get you into that that feeling of the film and and i think that the soundtrack does a really good job of setting that tone for you um throughout the whole thing i mean it's it's even though it's a very simplistic soundtrack it's very much predicated on bass and drums that it's very effective yeah it's effective and memorable i mean parts of the theme are very memorable um even though they're you know they're so simplistic so that i think is part of the reason why soundtracks i i really love so when they're really done well well, let's say they can make or break a film like when exactly i know i know you haven't seen star wars but if you if you ever think of like after you see Star Wars, imagine it without the John Williams score. If you've ever, and if you, people listening, if you've ever watched Star Wars, just imagine that film without John Williams score. Without it, that film is nowhere near as great. Uh-huh. And, like it has nowhere near its appeal. And you know this film does have like a memorable score. If yeah. It, if it didn't have the right score to fit it, I think some of those, especially because this is. A, it's a two-hour film and like hour forty-five of its action. But it didn't have the right score, kind of, to fit the pace and the style and the setting. It would totally just throw you out of the film, right? You know, if it had a hard rock score of just you know ridiculous metal riffs throughout the whole thing, you're you're not going to get the same impression out of it as the intense orchestral build that it has. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so, I really love the score. Um, it's a very, I think it's very powerful, and and that really adds to the whole the whole thing. Um, we're coming probably to the end of the podcast. Do you have anything that you wanted to add about uh, Fury Road that we haven't talked about or touched upon? Anything that is? Did you want to say anything about the commentary of the film or the uh, the feminist commentary? Uh, it's probably been t- it's been touched upon quite a bit, I think, but. Um, yeah, I mean, it's. I think that some people are. I, I want to say hesitant to accept that it does have some sort of uh, a feminist undertone to it, but it really does, and uh, I think it, it's it's more so that its main plot finds equality with men and women in in that 
and you know, there's no reason to have uh, an enslaved female race. Well, I think um, you were. That's what I was going to say when I was talking about humanist. I think you can add it's more humanistic because it's not. It, it does highlight the plight of women in the film, where they're being like some of them are being used as breeders and for mother's milk. But at the same time, if you look at it. And probably not a lot of people do, is you can look at it in the war boys, they're all boys and men that are s- specifically built to be soldiers. Right. And to die for a Morton Joe. Yeah. So, and it's by the end of the film where you see the mothers that uh, Furiosa has known from her past and Max and uh, Nux, one of the war boys that joins them, that it's through them all joining together that they're able to accomplish things. It's, I mean, yes, the play the women is there and it's important to understand like yet they're not just they shouldn't just be used for breeding and just used for milk and they shouldn't be used viewed as property of joe and they shouldn't you know their children shouldn't just be viewed and as they, property and of they joe. ultimately stage the revolution that yeah. creates the and it's them but at the same time it's the war boys are trained to be brainwashed they're trained yeah. you know they're taught that joe is basically their god their savior and that by fighting with him and following him and dying for him, they will die. They will live, they will die, and they will live again in Valhalla, you know, this paradise. So I think it's it definitely has, it's not just slanted to one gender, it's slanted to both, it's slanted to both genders. You could view it, you know, as encompassing of problems for each side that could be addressed and yep. need to be looked at. And humanizing the people that in... Morton Joe's camp have been dehumanized for so long. Yeah, because if you looked at the War Boys, you wouldn't look. You wouldn't look at them as human. You would see them as pale, bald mutants, basically. Yeah. But they are still human. They're born of Joe, but yet, and they but they've been brainwashed to follow him and take drug. You know, basically take a drug. You know, that will get them amped up to you know fight for him and. Yeah. I, and that's where I think kind of the commentary for this film where with the reviewers they're kind of missing you're, you're missing both sides you i think george is trying to show i think if anything this is kind of this might be more of like kind of like an anti-war film you can mm-hmm. see it like when the fight goes on between furiosa and max against you know morton joe just all the destruction that happens and how kind of totally pointless it is and but it does, this film does bring up a lot of you know feminist points it brings up a lot of different points, but I think... Socialist points. You know, I think it's just... There's so much going on in it. It's not specifically coming from one's perspective. Yeah. It's... You can look at it and... Yeah. Gain a whole bunch of different perspectives. And I think, you know, kind of like what's going on, you know, today and whatnot. I think it's the... It's kind of like... All the stuff that's going on today could lead to the future that is in this film. And if you recognize all the problems that are kind of going on and try to tackle them, you can maybe bring out a better future. But I, mean. I mean, it's pretty impressive that a film that has relatively little dialogue in it is able to express all, express that. all yeah. that within its plot, as well as having, you know... Uh, you, over an hour of car chase and action sequences. Yeah. It's, it's very impressive. And, and I think that's why... And you wouldn't expect that from like exactly, this kind of film. No. You would expect it to be just, oh, you know. Yeah. 
I mean, I think that's why Fury Road has had such a resonance with everybody. You know, not just people who enjoy action movies, but people who enjoy movies in general, who enjoy being challenged by what they're watching. And, uh... But, I mean, as I say, the film does have, you know, it does have its strong... I mean, I know it has been labeled as a feminist film, but it does have a strong, you know, feminist parts where, like, you know, Charlize Theron is a strong female lead. It's not, you know, it's not just, uh... And at, and at the same time, you know, Mad Max is, is willing to concede when he is uh, outdone by Charlie Theron's character, uh, Furiosa. Mm -hmm. You know, he's he's willing to relinquish his control when he knows that it's the opportune time. But I mean, I think at the same time, it's part of the circumstances because the whole film is set in this post-apocalyptic wasteland. As I said before, the whole, if you want to live in that situation, you have to want to fucking live. So if he knows... Well, shit, we're getting chased by these certain guys, and we gotta take this long range shot. And I'm no good at this shot. Yeah. That she'd be the better shot. It's, it's not real. I don't know if it's as much as. I mean, yes, you could see it as he's always relinquishing control and manpower to her, but at the same time, you think it's more. I just want to fucking live. Well, yeah. It's, I'm it's, do. I'm doing what's necessary. And I think those are related. I mean, so in a live or die situation, he is recognizing equality. That's that's what he's doing, you know. He's he's recognizing that, you know, he, she's better at this than I am, and. But I think at the same time, I think of most people, especially like if you think of like stubborn, if you were looking like a stubborn, like stereotypical man who's misogynistic, who's put, placed that situation, they would probably be like, okay, yeah, fine, fucking do it. And they would probably drop their morals in a second just because that will to live would would supersede it. I though i I think you would i honestly no i think you would find very few people who would not be willing to do that and not only that not only that they might probably after as soon as like oh, i could probably they probably would have i could have done that yeah but i mean you know they would have turned it back around because now that they've gotten out of that situation they can go back to believing in what they're believing but i think in that situation they you know the will to the will to live would supersede whatever morals you have. Well, I think what's important is that Mad Max doesn't do that. He doesn't go back on it. He's, he doesn't make excuses for... No, he's unapologetically yeah. trying to do whatever he needs to do to survive. Yeah. He doesn't make excuses. He recognizes that Furiosa is pretty much unequal to him. And that's all there is to it. I mean, there's no real concept of gender in that situation. So... I, I I appreciate that. I think that's I think that's a, a step forward for for instead uh, of your typical action film where yeah it would exactly. be the, where where the man has to come in and rescue everybody, which doesn't happen. I mean, in general, in most of Mad Max Fury Road, there's not um, a masculine presence that has to rescue. No, it's it's all. It, I think yeah. I think I think it'd be it's more just out of selfish the selfish need for self preservation. Yeah. Every, every, it, everyone's a, everyone in that film is doing things for it's a team effort well not only that I'd say everything that everyone's doing in that film is kind of for self-preservation Max yeah. is doing what he needs to do to survive Furiosa is doing what she needs to do to help these women who want us live a better life and survive to get away from Joe and then Joe's doing what he needs to do to preserve what he has yeah and so I think it's a, you know you can say it's all about type 
a type of self-preservation. Yeah. So, I mean, you could flip it that way, but again, this is like more in-depth than thinking than like any other action film that you're really going to get out of there. It's, I mean... Yeah. Alright, anything else? Anything we gotta, else? We gotta rate it. Oh yeah, we gotta rate it. Gotta get, do it your rate scale. Yeah, so uh, on a scale of uh, one to five... Oh, uh, we're not doing ten? I, we can do ten. On a scale of one to ten gallons of guzzoline, what would you rate Mad Max Fury Road? Ten gallons of guzzoline. Ten gallons of guzzoline, wow. That'll get you probably 320 days into the wasteland, I would say. <laughs> It's one of my favorite films of all time, actually. It really is. A, it's, it's a very good film. And probably the best Mad Max film, too. I, I definitely appreciate it. And, you know, I've seen a ton of, you know, knockoff Italian exploitation films in the same vein, but nothing compares to, obviously, what, what we've seen in, in Fury Road. And I would be very uh, interested to see whatever George Miller has cooking for, for the next Mad Max film. I can't wait. I'm eagerly like when they like now it's the next Mad Max film. I'm like day one going. I know, and and then, and then I'm afraid that we're gonna be super disappointed. Uh, even still, I I, I, I still would want to. Yeah, I still would. I haven't. See it. I there's like not really any films that get released these days. And I'm like I can't wait to see like yeah. when like Spectre is coming out the next Bond film. It's like it could be good. I mean, the last Skyfall was really great, but it's like. I don't know if they're gonna how Spectre's gonna be. Is Batista gonna Batista bomb anybody in this? Which he didn't, which totally made the film yeah. nowhere near as good. And like, it was and it was disappointing. Really. Was, they totally underutilized Christoph Waltz. Yeah. As Ernst Stapper Yeah, it, it definitely was disappointing. And, but I mean, and for the most part boring. But I mean anywho, but I mean like there's not a lot of films that I see getting released. Like, I know a lot of people are pumped up about Batman vs. Superman, which I do want to see when it, co it comes I do out in a few days. Yeah. But at the same time, it's just like... Eh. Uh, yeah, I can't it's say like, that like, I'm like really excited it's to like, see it. Do I think Ben Affleck's going to be a great yeah. Batman? It's kind of like... No, I, I definitely but, have my reservations about what's going to happen. But, I've read the reviews. They've been very, very poor. Oh, have they? Oh, yeah. Oh, See, and like not only that, but like Batman versus Superman, and then Marvel's Civil War is coming out like a couple, like two months later. They're basically going to be the same damn film. Yeah. If you think about, it, I mean, I know comic book uh, fans are going to get on my ass, but it's like it's basically the same thing. Like, good for you know, like two goods for fighting for each other because they have two different beliefs. It's the same thing with Civil War. It's like Captain America believes you know superheroes shouldn't have license, but Tony Stark thinks they do because you know it's the right thing to do and. Yeah. You know, the moral impl implications, but... I do want to see both of those films. But, what do I think... I mean, I think Civil War's going to be better, but... Do I think Batman vs. Superman's going to be good? No. I don't... I mean, I refuse to see Man of Steel, because when I saw the trailers for that, I was like, yeah, this looks like totally Well, then shit. I definitely don't think you're going to like Batman vs. Superman. I Probably not, but I, I know I'm probably not going to. But, I mean, when I saw the Man of Steel trailers... I haven't I seen like, Man of Steel. I was like, so. this does not look good at all. I mean, Zack Snyder, so it's going to be very similar. <laughs> Apparently, yeah, I mean, I've heard that it's 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 an hour and... No, it's I'm sorry, it's two and a half hours of, you know, basically talking and dialogue before you actually get to, like, the last half hour of actual Section. fighting between the two. And and I hear that it's it's just not... It doesn't have a good 
plot to it. It just doesn't. Which I expected. I mean, well, no, I, that's I, why I said I'm. I'm not real. I'm not super excited to see it. I will see it. Like you know, I'll see I. It. I don't get what DC's problem is though. When you think about it, it's like how are you not able to make a good Justice League film yet? Yeah. It's it's Marvel's got the Avengers out and they did that great. How have you not done like? when that's the only like new Marvel film I see. I haven't seen any of the Iron Mans. I haven't seen any of the no. Captain Americas. I haven't seen any of the Thor. I do want to see them, but it's like I've only seen the Avengers. Like that was great. How has DC not come out with, like, a fucking Justice League film yet? Well, I don't... Yeah, I, don't, I mean, I don't think... I know, that, which, I, which I know this is all building up to a Justice League film, but at the same time, it's like, how have you not done a Wonder Woman film yet? How have you not done an Aquaman film yet? How have you not done a good Green Lantern film yet? Yeah. It's, it's just mind bot. It just boggles my mind. I don't know. We'll have to go see it, and then we'll, we'll have to podcast it. I wonder if, I would love to hear what Kevin Smith has, has to say about Ben Affleck as Batman. Yeah. We'll have to like, go on. He'll be like, Ben's the boy, but man, this, he sucked. <laughs> we'll have to go on Monday or something like that and podcast it. Okay. That'd be an option. Yeah, we can do that. Maybe we'll do that next. And that'll be our next review, Batman that's, versus Superman. That's right, Batman. I'd, I'd be down for that. I'll definitely go see it. Like I said, I don't have, I have my reservations about how it's going to be, but. I still can't believe Jesse Eisenberg's fucking likes to and I hear he's one of the lesser parts of the film. Out of all the people you could pick to be... I mean, people were bitching about Kevin Spacey being Lex Luthor and Superman Returns, which I don't actually think that's that, that bad of him. I actually like Superman Returns. I actually think it's a good, actually a good movie. You're going to bitch about like Kevin Spacey being Lex Luthor? I can't imagine what Jesse Eisenberg is going to be like as Lex Luthor. Can you imagine a whiny, bitchy... Jew Frode, kid being, oh, he's not really a kid anymore, but just being like, I'm like yeah. Sleuther. Well, and I heard that Wonder Woman is the better character within this film. Doesn't have that much to do, but, uh, you know, her character is actually the most promising for when they do a Wonder Woman spinoff later on. They're going to have to. Yeah, I'm sure they're going to. They're really working on... Creating, uh, well, like I said, they're doing they're a gonna, series out of They're these. trying to do what Marvel's been doing, and they're going to try, you know, build towards a yeah. Justice League film. But at the same time, like I said, it's like, how hit, like, you you are so far behind. Like, by the time they finally release Justice League, Mar Avengers yeah. Avengers 3 will be out. And it's like, where they've, you... you know, they've got all those new 52s that they've been working on and, and, and everything like that. You know, the, you would think that they would have the ability to create. Well, see, that's, as I've told you before, that right there is, like, one of the reasons why, as much as I like comic book lore, I can't ever read the comics. It's yeah. It's like, where the fuck do I begin? Well, that's why they started New 52. So I know, they they, they, I know so they could reboot, yeah. you know, reboot the universe. And I understand all that, but at the same time, like, if I, like, I would just be like, well, like, I, because me and you are both, like, completionists and very yeah. kind of, yeah. like, gotta like, do things yeah. in order. It'd be like, for us, like, well, if, I want to read Batman. Where I begin? Right, exactly. I got I got to begin in 1933. It bugs like, me with that. Yeah. yeah, like I've thought about beginning Batman, and it's like, well, I, you know, I can't just start in like this run in 2000 because I know that there's stuff before 2000. You know, it's like I got to start right in 1933, and then like work. Well, I, I feel the same exact way. I mean, my like whole interest in comics has kind of been from the cartoons. Like the Tim, the, the Bruce Tim verse and the Warner Brothers cartoons. Like I love the Batman cartoon I, by Bruce Tim. I love the Superman cartoon. I love the Justice League cartoons. I love, you know, Static Shock and all that. That's all like great to me. And I love all that. And I like the films. 
and I, you know, I've gotten kind of into the continuity through that, but at the same time, like, if I ever wanted to pick up a comic book, it's kind of like, yeah. it's like, yeah, that'd be cool and all, but it's like, I don't want to just, like, you know, it just, it feels like, ugh. Yep. But, yeah. So maybe we'll do Batman versus Superman next. We'll try to see it on Monday, and we'll do it next week. Sounds, that sounds like a plan to me. Um, for, can't wait to see what that box office return is. All right. Um, Blood and Black Rum podcast can be accessed from our SoundCloud. It's, uh, you know, soundcloud.com, blood, uh, blood dash and dash black and dash rum. That's, uh, that's, that's how you access it. Or you can just go to soundcloud.com and type in Blood and Black Rum podcast and you'll find us a lot faster. <laughs> um, you can also get us on iTunes, which, uh, will generally be up the day after we post our podcast episodes on SoundCloud, just the way that the RSS feed, uh, works. Uh, so search for us there on Blood and Black Rum podcast. Oh, yeah. Please subscribe and review. You never gave your score on this film. I didn't give it a score. I would say nine. I would say nine. Nine guzzlings. Nine, nine gallons of guzzling. <laughs> um, catch us, you can catch us on Facebook. We're at facebook.com slash blood and black rum podcast. Uh, we also are on Stitcher and a few other sites as well that you can listen to our podcasts on. Um, just go to any podcast hosting site and just type right. in blood and, and black and, rum and, and, see, we'll, and see if we're there. We'll probably be there and listen to us on that one as well. Even if that means listening to an episode you've already listened to a couple times. So, um, that, yeah. Watch this film. That's the last thing I'm going to say. Watch this goddamn... Fury Road. Watch, watch it. Fury Road. Got screwed out of best picture. And the last, and, and the last thing is uh, email us about what you thought about Fury Road or any other films at Blood and Black Rum Podcast at gmail.com and uh, and share us around. And yeah, we will do later on uh, Mad Max, uh, Road Warrior, and Beyond. Yeah, the, the, we'll do the original films as well. So no worries about that. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week probably with uh, Batman vs. Superman. See you later. Have a good night.